Why has God scheduled future events for planet Earth? Why will there be seven years of tribulation, followed by the second coming of the Lord Jesus, and then the thousand-year millennial age? There has to be a reason. Uh, God doesn't do anything without a purpose. But to understand why the events of the future we have to go back to the beginning of time because what will happen at the end of history is based upon things that took place at the beginning of history. Back in eternity past, God determined to have a kingdom over which he could rule as a sovereign king. That kingdom was to be known as the kingdom of God. But there was a problem. Since God was all that existed as the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the problem was, where would God derive subjects to make up his kingdom? Well, the scriptures indicate that God determined to create two major kinds of personal subjects to serve him within his kingdom. The first kind were angels. And the scriptures make it very clear that God created an enormous host of angelic beings. Both the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 and the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 5 were privileged to see a great host of holy angels that amounted in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions surrounding the throne of God in heaven. And the scriptures indicate that when God created the angels he created them with varying degrees of intelligence and power and so we have different ranks of angels referred to in the Bible, cherubim, seraphim, archangels, princes, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions. And God arranged these angels according to rank, in line with their varying degrees of intelligence and power, much as the modern-day army is arranged according to rank. By the way, that's why the scriptures sometimes refer to God as the Lord of hosts literally the Lord of armies. God is the commander-in-chief of all the angelic armies of the heavenly realm. Well, after God completed the creation of angels to serve him primarily in the heavenly realm of his universal kingdom, God then created planet Earth. And then he brought into existence the second kind of personal subject to serve him in his kingdom, and that was man. God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, and placed them in a perfect environment here on planet Earth. When you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we are told there that when God created man, he gave man dominion over everything else that God had created and placed here on planet Earth. Now, the fact that God gave man dominion over everything else here on the earth tells us what the original form of government was for planet earth as ordained by God. Now, the original form of government is that which is called a theocracy. Now, you're familiar, of course, with the term democracy, which literally means rule of the people. The word theocracy literally means rule of God. And if you were to look up that term in a good English dictionary, you would find it defined something like this. A theocracy is a form of government in which the rule of God is administered by a representative. You see, it was God's intention that Adam be his representative 
administering God's rule on his behalf over this earthly province of God's universal kingdom. When we read the last verse of Genesis chapter 1, Moses tells us that at the end of creation week, when God looked at all that he had made, his evaluation was that all of it was very good. In other words, no part of God's creation had gone sour against him yet. But sad to say, it would not remain that way very long. Sometime after God had brought his kingdom into existence, the most powerful, most intelligent of all the angels whom God had created, one that in Ezekiel 28 God called the anointed cherub that covers, became very proud over how great he was. And according to Isaiah chapter 14, this great angel, in his pride, decided that he could make himself just like the Most High God. This angel's motivation was to become just like God. He saw that God was the ultimate sovereign one in the universe with no one else in authority over him telling him what he may do and what he may not do. He decided he wanted to be the ultimate sovereign one in the universe with no one else in authority over him. He saw that God had a kingdom over which he ruled as a sovereign king. And so if he were to be like God, this angel determined he too had to have a kingdom over which he could rule as a sovereign king. He saw that God had both angels and humans serving him as subjects within his kingdom. And so if he were to be like God, he too would have to have both angels and humans serving him as subjects within his kingdom. But this angel had a problem which God did not have. And that's the fact that since he was only a creature and not the creator, he did not have the ability to create other angels and human beings. And so the most that he could hope for was to persuade God's angels and God's human beings to join him in his revolt against God. By the way, when this angel began this rebellion against God, God changed his name to Satan, which literally means enemy or adversary. Very appropriate change of name, because that's what this exalted angel had now become, the great enemy or adversary of the sovereign God of the universe. Satan made his approach first to the other angels. And the Bible does not give us a total number of angels who joined him in his rebellion against God, but the scriptures do give a number of intimations to the effect that a sizable number of God's holy angels decided to follow Satan in his rebellion against God. And so there was a fall of angels away from God that took place. Uh, one passage which makes this quite clear is in Revelation chapter 12, where we have a reference to Satan and his angels. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, talks about uh, these uh, evil angelic beings under Satan's domain uh, that serve him uh, as uh, their master. So he was successful in getting angels to switch their allegiance away from God over to him and now to serve him within his kingdom. Then Satan made his approach to man. And we have the record of this in Genesis chapter 3. He took upon himself the deceptive form of a serpent entered into man's perfect environment upon the face of the earth, and sad to say was successful in getting man to join him in his rebellion against God as well. And so there was a fall of man 
away from God that took place there very early in planet Earth's history. Now, the Bible teaches that there were a number of very tragic consequences of man joining Satan's revolt there in the Garden of Eden. Let me point out just three of those consequences because these are essential to see if you are to understand why the events that God has scheduled for the end of world history. One of the tragic consequences of man joining Satan's rebellion against God is the fact that uh, now that man had switched his allegiance away from God over to Satan, the theocracy was lost. Since a theocracy is a form of government in which a representative of God administers God's rule on his behalf, and since Adam, God's representative, had now joined Satan's rebellion against God, God had lost his representative here on earth, and as a result, the theocracy was lost from planet Earth. A second tragic consequence of man joining Satan's revolt is this. Satan now was able to usurp the rule of the world system away from God. To put it another way, the theocracy was now replaced by a Satanocracy here on planet Earth. And the scriptures indicate that Satan has been dominating and controlling the world system ever since. Throughout all the rest of the ages of Old Testament history, uh, during the life of Christ on planet Earth, throughout the history of the church, he's dominating and controlling the world system today, and he will continue to do so for a while yet into the future. Several things indicate that Satan was now able to usurp the rule of the world system away from God. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 4. And we'd like to look at verses 5 and 6. Luke is recording Satan's tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. And we read in verse 5 of Luke chapter 4, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Notice, Satan had the authority to cause all the kingdoms of the whole world system to pass in visionary form before the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give you and the glory of them. Notice Satan had the authority to turn over the rule of the world system to the Lord Jesus, if he so desired. And then he made this next significant statement, For that is delivered unto me. More literally, it is has been handed over to me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. Notice, Satan was saying that the rule of the world system had been handed over to him. Who handed over the rule of the world system to Satan? Adam did. Because Adam was the one to whom God had originally given that rule on God's behalf. And whether Adam recognized it or not, when he made that fateful choice in the Garden of Eden to rebel against God, he was thereby handing over the rule of the world system to God's enemy, Satan. This is why then the Lord Jesus, more than once while he was here, you can read this, for example, in John 14, verse 30, and again in John 16, Jesus, more than once while he was here in his first coming, referred to Satan as the prince of this world, literally the ruler of this world. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 
refers to Satan as the god of this age. And by the way, this is why uh, the, the scriptures warn believers, James chapter 4, verse 4, that we had better not love the world system in which we live right now, that whoever loves the world system makes himself an enemy of God. And the reason that's true is because the present world system is dominated, controlled by God's great enemy, Satan. Believers, if we are going to love that godless world system in which we live, we are thereby loving what belongs to God's enemy, Satan, and that makes us an enemy of God. All these things are indicating that when the theocracy was lost through the fall of man, it was replaced by a Satanocracy. Satan usurped the rule of the world system away from God, and he's been dominating and controlling the godless world system ever since, right up to our present day. A third tragic consequence of man joining a Satan's revolt against God is that God placed all of nature under a curse. One indication of that is in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had made their fateful choice to rebel against God, when God came into the garden to confront them with their rebellion, one of the things God said to Adam is this, Cursed is the ground for your sake. And from now on it will be by the sweat of your brow that you will till the ground to grow crops to sustain life. And the earth will now begin giving forth such difficult things as thorns and thistles. I take it that that curse that God put upon the soil of the earth radically reduced the fertility level of the soil of the earth and meant that now man would have to labor with much more difficulty to grow crops to sustain life. Not only was the, the ground of the earth cursed, but Paul, in, in the second half of Romans chapter 8, says that all of creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own choosing. Nature didn't ask to be put out of this curse of man's sin, but it was subjected to it nonetheless. And Paul goes on to say that the whole of creation groans and travails in pain and can hardly wait until the ultimate day of redemption, when that curse of man's sin will be lifted off of nature and nature will be restored back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. Even animal nature was radically changed. Prior to the fall of man, all animals were completely tame and were vegetarian in diet. But now that the curse was put upon them as well, animals became wild, and many of them became carnivorous or flesh-eating, carried at each other's flesh as a source of food. All of nature was put under a curse as a result of man joining Satan's revolt against God. Well, now that Satan had both angels and human beings within his kingdom, his kingdom was established, and now there were two very powerful kingdoms existing within the universe, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And since Satan's goal was to overthrow God and make himself the sovereign lord of this universe, this meant there was going to be all-out war between these two kingdoms. And that warfare that began back there early in history has continued down through the ages of time, right up to our present day. It's going on today all around us. And every one of us that's alive on planet Earth, in everything we do and say every day is playing a role in that continuing spiritual war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And may I point out to you that it is this continuing warfare between these two powerful spiritual kingdoms that provides us with the key for understanding what the ultimate purpose of world history is. 
Since Satan's goal for history is to overthrow God as the sovereign Lord of the universe and replace God with himself, God's purpose for history, and therefore the ultimate purpose, is for God to glorify himself by demonstrating the fact that he alone is the sovereign, omnipotent God of this universe and that none of his creatures, no matter how powerful, how intelligent, or how much time given to try every means conceivable, can ever overthrow him. That's the ultimate purpose of world history, for God to glorify himself by demonstrating the fact that he alone is the sovereign God of the universe. Now, when you study the scriptures, you find that in order for God to accomplish that purpose for world history, there are three things that God must do before the history of this world ends. And if God does not do all three of these things before the history of this planet Earth ends, he ends up defeated by his enemy, Satan, within the scope of this present planet Earth's history. The first thing God must do before the history of this world ends to accomplish his purpose for history is this. He must crush Satan and get rid of him and his evil spiritual kingdom rule from planet Earth altogether. In other words, God must crush Satan and get rid of the Satanocracy from planet Earth altogether. Second thing God must do to accomplish his purpose for history is this. He must restore the theocracy back to this planet again. Since this earth started out with a theocracy, but then it was lost, if God doesn't restore that theocracy to this planet before the history of this uh, world ends, God ends up defeated by Satan within the scope of this present earth's history. And do you realize what that means? That means that before the history of this planet ends, once again, God must have an Adam, a man, functioning as his representative, administering God's rule worldwide for the honor and the glory of God. And the scriptures make it very clear that God will have such an Adam. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45 calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam lost the theocracy for God by joining Satan's lead to rebel against God. But Jesus Christ at his glorious second coming will return as the last Adam God's representative to restore God's theocratic kingdom rule to planet Earth and as God's representative to administer his rule over this whole planet for 1,000 years. So God must crush Satan and get rid of his Satanocracy from planet Earth. Then he must restore his own theocracy to this planet. And when God does restore that theocracy to planet Earth, God must lift the curse of sin, man's sin, off of nature and restore nature back to the way it was originally when God first created this planet and before it came under that curse as a result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Three things God must do before the history of this world ends in order to accomplish his purpose for history. Now with that in mind, and what we've been looking at here so far is this background for future events. With that in mind, notice then why a seven-year tribulation period, a second coming of Christ to the earth, 
at a thousand-year millennial age before the history of this world ends. What about the seven-year tribulation period? God will have several purposes for the seven-year tribulation period, but one of the major purposes that God will have for that seven-year period of time will be the systematic crushing of Satan's kingdom rule here on planet Earth. When you read the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 6 and going through chapter 18, you will find that throughout the course of the future seven-year tribulation period, God will pour out three series of judgments upon Satan's domain here on planet Earth. First, there will be seven sealed judgments. Then, seven trumpet judgments. And finally, seven bowl or vile judgments. And by the way, as, as these are poured out in consecutive order, the further they go into the seven-year period, the more intense the judgments become. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, to a very significant statement that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and verse 15. Revelation, chapter 11, and verse 15, where John records for us ahead of time what will take place when the seventh trumpet judgment is unleashed by God through one of his great angels upon Satan's domain here on planet Earth. Now keep in mind again, First, seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl or vile judgments. We're going to look here at what happens when the seventh trumpet, in other words, the last of the second series of judgments, is unleashed. Now, let me just explain something. If you read on from this point in Revelation, you will find that the seventh trumpet consists of the entire third and final series of judgments. In other words, the seventh trumpet contains within itself, consists of, all seven bowl or vile judgments. That's significant because that means that when the seventh trumpet is sounded, that will unleash the last series of judgments from heaven upon Satan's domain that will culminate with the second coming of Christ and the complete end of Satan's rule here on planet Earth. And in light of that significance, notice what will happen when the seventh trumpet will be sounded. Chapter 11, verse 15 of Revelation. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? Handel's Messiah. And it's from this passage that Handel derived that tremendous refrain in the Hallelujah Chorus. Bless your hearts. Do you realize what that is? That's a tremendous cry of victory. When God's creatures up in heaven see the last series of judgments being unleashed upon Satan's domain here on planet Earth, which will end Satan's rule upon the earth, God's creatures in heaven will get so excited in anticipation of what that means that they will not be able to hold the excitement in. And they'll give forth that tremendous cry of victory. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, Satan has been dominating the world system with the kingdoms of the world. 
But finally God is bringing that to an end. Here is the systematic crushing of Satan's kingdom rule throughout the seven-year tribulation period. That is one of the major purposes from God's perspective for that seven-year period of time. But then immediately after the seven-year tribulation, the Lord Jesus will come out of heaven in his glorious second coming. And John was given a preview of that in Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, where he says that he saw heaven opened and he saw the Lord Jesus uh, come riding out of heaven on the back of a white horse. Now keep in mind, this is a vision. And in visions you have symbols, but symbols are very real things. In the Orient, in John's day, when a rider of a white horse was used as a symbol, it always symbolized a victorious conqueror. Now, I believe that Jesus will come out of heaven literally on a white horse, but it's going to symbolize something. I'm convinced that it's symbolizing that Jesus Christ is coming out of heaven, back to the earth, as God's victorious conqueror, as the last Adam to finish the job of crushing Satan and ridding the earth of his kingdom rule and taking back the rule of the earth once and for all for the honor and the glory of God. And John saw pitted against the Lord Jesus, Satan's man, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the rulers and armies of all the nations of the world all gathered together, all the, the military might of the combined human race gathered together there in the land of Israel at the very end of the seven-year tribulation period, one of their purposes for being there is to try to prevent the Lord Jesus from coming back to earth and crushing their master Satan and taking the rule of the earth back on behalf of God. But Jesus will have the Antichrist and the false prophet seized, removed from the earth, cast alive into the eternal lake of fire, according to Revelation 19, where those two men will be tormented day and night throughout eternity. And then Jesus will destroy the godless forces that are gathered there against him as God's anointed one, as the last Adam coming back to the earth. Look at what will happen in conjunction with Jesus' second coming, Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Satan's domain gets systematically crushed through the three series of judgments during the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus, when he comes out of heaven in his second coming, will finish the job of crushing the military forces that have belonged to Satan's kingdom rule, and then crushes Satan himself by having him bound and removed from the earth and imprisoned in the bottomless pit where he's held as the prison of God for the next 1,000 years. Notice, through the seven-year tribulation period and the second coming of Christ, Satan is completely crushed and his rule 
is removed from the earth altogether. And so through the combination of the seven-year tribulation period and the second coming of Christ, God will accomplish the first thing he must do to fulfill his purpose for world history. But then, look if you would at verse 4 of Revelation 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. These are people who got saved during the seven-year tribulation period, but then were martyred during the seven-year tribulation period for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Those who had died for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, they hadn't worshipped the Antichrist, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Uh, look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that is part of the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This reign for a thousand years is referring to the millennium. And the millennium involves the restoration of the theocracy of God. That's the ultimate thing the millennium is about. Now that Satan's uh, rule has been removed from planet Earth altogether and crushed, now Jesus, as the last Adam, will restore God's theocratic kingdom rule to planet Earth. And as God's representative, Jesus will administer God's rule worldwide. If you go back to the prophet Zechariah and chapter 14, uh, we have some prophecies here which fit exactly with that of Revelation. Zechariah chapter 14, if you were to begin with chapter 12, we have the, the armies of the world gathering. Uh, they're in the land of Israel. And by the time you come to the beginning part, chapter 14, they come up and surround the city of Jerusalem. And they're beginning to systematically destroy the city of Jerusalem. But then verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. There's the second coming of Christ that John saw in Revelation 19, coming to destroy the combined military might of the human race that's gathered there under the Antichrist and the false prophet and the rulers of the nations of the world. And if you read on in Zechariah 14, we have a graphic description of how he will destroy those forces. But then look at verse 9 of Zechariah 14. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. The Lord Jesus, in his glorious second coming, after he destroys uh, the remaining a part of Satan's kingdom rule that gets rid of Satan, he will be king over the whole world, not just part of it, but over all of planet Earth. And as God's representative, as the last Adam, he will administer God's rule on God's behalf over this entire earthly province of God's universal kingdom for the honor and the glory of the true and the living God. By the way, may I encourage you sometime to look at the many places where Jesus, when he was here in his first coming, referred to himself in his second coming, and almost without exception, he refers to himself as coming back as the Son of Man. 
Now he'll still be the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. But he keeps talking about when the Son of Man will return with the clouds of heaven with his holy angels. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He's emphasizing he's coming back as an Adam in humanity to be God's Adam, to be God's representative, to administer God's rule over the entire earth for 1,000 years, the last age of world history. In other words, he restores the theocracy on behalf of God and will administer God's rule over the world for 1,000 years. There are so many incredible Old Testament prophecies about the rule of the Messiah that describe the perfectly righteous and just rule that he'll administer for a perfectly righteous and just God over this earth for the last great age of world history. So Satan and his rule will be crushed and removed from planet Earth through the seven-year tribulation period and second coming of Christ. And then the theocracy will be restored and it will rule the Earth for the last age of this Earth's history. But what about the third thing that God must do to accomplish this purpose for history? And that is when the theocracy is restored that the curse of man's sin will be lifted off of nature. And all of nature will be restored back to the way it was originally before the fall of man took place. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28, where Jesus made a very significant statement to his disciples. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration... When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I want to focus your attention upon that expression, the regeneration. What did Jesus mean by that? The English word regenerate literally means to generate again. To generate again is what the English word regenerate means. And it refers to the restoration of a lost condition. The idea is that there was an original condition, but something happened that caused that original condition to be lost. But later, through regeneration, that original condition is generated again. It's restored back to the way it was originally. What Jesus is referring to is this. When God first created planet Earth, nature was perfect here on planet Earth. But then something happened that caused that perfect nature to be lost. The thing that happened was the fall of man. God's first Adam, defecting from God and joining God's enemy, Satan, is rebelling against God. And Jesus is saying, in the future, nature is going to be regenerated. It's going to be generated again. It's going to be restored back to the way it was originally. Now that's the English meaning. Let me tell you what the Greek word is that's translated regeneration here in Matthew 19.28. This is incredible in light of the things we've been looking at. It's actually made up of two Greek words. The first one is the word pollen. We would spell that P-A-L-I-N. And that Greek word means again. The second word is the word Genesis. 
a Greek word Genesis from which the first book of the Old Testament derived its name. What Jesus was talking about is when the earth will experience Genesis again. The word Genesis literally means beginning. So he's talking about that in the future the earth would experience the beginning again. He's referring to the fact that in the future, when the theocracy of God is restored to planet Earth, nature will be regenerated. It will be generated again. And nature will experience the beginning again, or Genesis again. It will be restored back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. And notice Jesus told his disciples when that would happen. When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. In other words, when Jesus is physically present back here on planet Earth again as the Son of Man, the last Adam, sits upon a throne to rule the earth on behalf of his heavenly Father, Almighty God, for the last great age of world history. May I point something out to you very significant? When you go through the Old Testament prophets, you will find that by revelation of God, they foretold many of the dramatic changes that Messiah will bring to nature on planet Earth when he restores that future millennial theocratic kingdom rule of God. You could list them in a long column of all the dramatic changes that he'll bring to nature as he restores it back to the way it was, lifts the curse of man's sin off of nature. If you were to list all those foretold changes from the Old Testament prophets in one column and then go through the Gospels and in a, in a parallel column record all the miracles that Jesus performed in his first coming that are recorded for us in the Gospels and then compare the Old Testament prophecies with the miracles in the Gospels, you'll find an amazing thing. For every Old Testament prophecy of changes Messiah will bring to nature when he restores the theocracy of God in the future, for every one of those foretold changes to nature, there's at least one and sometimes even more than one, in some instances, exact parallel miracle that Jesus performed in his first coming. Do you see the significance of that? Every time Jesus performed a miracle in his first coming, he was giving the people of Israel a sample, a foretaste, of the miraculous changes he will bring to nature worldwide in his glorious second coming when he returns as the last Adam to restore the theocracy and at that same time will lift the curse of man's sin off of nature and will miraculously restore nature back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. This is why the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 5 referring to Jews of the first century who were eyewitnesses of the miracles that Jesus performed, the writer to the Hebrews calls those who witnessed Jesus' miracles, he says that they were tasting the powers of the age to come. Now the book of Hebrews was written in our present church age. The age to come beyond our present church age is the millennial age, when the theocracy is restored. And he's saying that the Jews of the first century who witnessed Jesus' miracles, as they witnessed those miracles that Christ performed, they were sampling, they were tasting the powers of the future millennial age. In other words, Jesus through his miracles 
was demonstrating graphically to the people of Israel, I am the promised Messiah, the last Adam, the Son of Man, who will lift the curse of man's sin off of nature, and through my powers, restore nature back to the way it was in the opening of Genesis, at the beginning of time, before nature was put out of joint through the curse of man's sin being placed upon it because man rebelled against God and joined his enemy Satan in his revolt against the true and the living God. God will crush Satan and get rid of him as kingdom rule from planet earth altogether through the seven year tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. He will restore his theocracy through the Lord Jesus as the last Adam in conjunction with the second coming. And that theocracy will last throughout the whole last age of this present earth's history. And when Jesus does restore that theocracy, God through him will lift the curse of man's sin off of nature and restore nature back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. And by accomplishing those three things before the history of this world ends, God will accomplish or fulfill his purpose for history, glorifying himself by demonstrating the fact that he alone is the sovereign God of this universe. And none of his creatures, no matter how powerful, no matter how intelligent, no matter how much time given to try every means conceivable, can ever overthrow him and replace him as the Lord of this universe. That's why these future events and why they're so essential. If that millennial kingdom does not take place, God ends up a defeated God by his enemy Satan within the scope of this earth's history. And that's why the millennium is absolutely essential and it must take place. Why has God revealed this to us ahead of time? And why should we study, therefore, the prophetic scriptures? Well, one reason is, if you don't know about these future events, you're not going to understand what the purpose of history is and what God is accomplishing during the course of world history. You also will not be able to fully understand the implications of what happened in the past. And you also will not be able to understand why some of the trends that are going on in the world around us today. A study of prophecy is absolutely essential to understand the past, the present, and what's going to happen in the future, and the ultimate purpose of history, God's purpose. And if we ignore it, we will miss all these incredible truths and the whole purpose of history. And that's why God has revealed these things ahead of time in the scriptures. So that we can discern these things and understand them. And as a result, have a greater appreciation of the only one who is the true and the living God of this universe and will always be that for his honor and his glory.